Throughout history, Christians have created art, written books, and made music for worship, entertainment, and to express their faith in ever-increasing endeavors. And for the last six decades, they have created contemporary Christian music for the church and for the masses. Here at Legacy, we are counting down the finest works over these last decades. So join me, your host, David Lohman, as we celebrate CCM's greatest albums, right here on Legacy. Ah, thank you once again for joining me on Legacy, CCM's greatest albums. I'm your host, David Lohman. And in this episode, we are going to be spanning the decades and spanning the styles of music. We're going to have music from the 70s, the 80s, the 90s, the 2000s. And we're going to go from punk rock to cool jazz to hardcore to alternative, straight ahead rock, adult contemporary, you name it. And a little Jesus music thrown in there as well. So hang tight. We have very special guest. We have Gene and Stanley from Lust Control coming back on Legacy right after this. Here at Legacy, we want to make it easy for you to find us. There are several different ways that you can talk to us and let us know what you think about what is going on here at the podcast and also on the blog. You can always go to our website at LegacyCCMsGreatestAlbums.com. That's LegacyCCMsGreatestAlbums.com or by email at LegacyCCMsGreatestAlbums at gmail.com. You can always find us on the Facebook and interact with us there at facebook.com slash Legacy CCM's Greatest Albums, at Instagram at Legacy CCM's Greatest Albums, and finally on Twitter at Legacy CCM's Best. Hidden deep, somewhere in a bunker, Gene and Stanley of the band Lust Control don their masks and join me in this very special interview in regards to their debut project, This is a Condemnation, right here on Legacy. Number 947.
Welcome back to Legacy. I'm your host, Dave Lohman, and I'm now being joined by the somewhat mysterious and always interesting and fun members of the band Lust Control as we talk about the album, This is a Condom Nation. And um, before I came on, in fact, I have uh, two of the original members that were part of this album. I have Gene and Stanley. And um, they are wearing their uh, their garb. If you ever saw some of the early uh, videos, they were a, a, a pretty scary looking band. Uh, I don't know why they decided to, to hide their faces. Maybe that's a question we can uh, delve into and see exactly what was going on in the early days in the creation of Less Control. So uh, thank you to Gene and Stanley for uh, joining me on uh, on Legacy. So say hello. Hello, everybody. This is Gene of Lust Control. Thanks for having us on, David. Oh, you bet. And Stanley, do you want to say hello? Yes, this is Stanley. <laughs> Play guitar for Lust Control back in the day. Way, way back in the day. And Stanley, as we'll uh, find out, also went on to be a part of another band that a lot of people are going to be familiar with and a band that we will be talking about later in the countdown. In fact, a band that I just got a hold of a purple vinyl of. Um, so that's our, our little clue of where Stanley, after leaving the band, decided uh, to go. Uh, anyway, if, if either one of you would like to um, give me a little background on the formation of the band, where did Lust, before we talk about the very controversial album, album that is on the countdown uh give us a little history of the band so why don't you give us a, a, a little synopsis gene okay uh both of us like to talk so this might be tough or might be lots of fun <laughs> but going back to 1985 a little back history you know paul and carrie and a couple other friends went to the cornerstone 85 festival on the way back they saw a billboard with a pig with sunglasses and a mohawk and they said that's one bad pig what a great name for a band and the following year one Bad Pig had formed, as well as a band called the Paul Kubek Band, which sounded like a little bit like Tears for Fears meets In Excess, maybe, and Simple Minds, really, really good rock and roll in Austin. And we decided to form a band, a punk rock band, uh, and just put a tape out in the Christian Music Underground to see what would happen. We decided to do it anonymously, just to let the music do the talking and see what the tape did for itself. Originally, the band was going to be called Talking Ass, uh, and the name of the album was going to be called Stop Hitting Me, because that's what Balaam's donkey spoke to Balaam. <laughs> and our church uh, administrator uh, took me out to lunch and implored me to change the name of our band, because Dwayne, the bass player for our band, was the associate pastor at our church, Mission Hills in Austin, Texas. And... <laughs> This administrator went, proceeded to tell me that this would be a blight on his ministry and that we needed to change the name. And he said, you guys are creative, you know, change the name. And that's the, that's the pitch that got me thinking, you know what, we are creative. And so I started looking over the lyrics and Stanley had written a song called Mad at the Girls. And the chorus was, I want to control my lust, but my mind I cannot trust. Mad at the girls, mad at the girls, mad at the girls. I'm mad at myself. And I looked at the line, control my lust. I thought, lust control, let's put it together. And so I brought that to Paul and he said, that can be our new name, but if we're gonna call the band Lust Control, we must make this the name of our our album. Do you wanna pick it up there, Stanley? Sure. Uh, we were we had written some song and, uh, and looking for kind of a title of the cassette some of the uh that we were going to put out and it was just going to be on cassette too something that we could 
produce very cheaply and, and kind of get out there on the underground kind of thing, you know. But um, as far as the title of the cassette, uh, a lot of bands choose uh, one of the songs that's on the album to title their, their record with. And we did that in the future. But um, for this one, we were trying to look for something that was really going to catch people's attention. We weren't too concerned about our own careers, our own standing in the music industry, because we were going to be an anonymous band. We were going to use our middle names, and we were going to wear masks, ski masks for any pictures, or if we ever got to perform. Uh, but we would be an anonymous band. So we thought, well, we could go kind of all the way with this title, and what are we going to call it? And if my memory is correct, and it may not be, but if it, if it is, uh, a good friend of ours named Ron Bronson, um, he uh, he came up with the title just kind of goofing around. I think we were all kind of goofing around on possible titles and different things. And he said, how about this is a condom nation? And thought, wow, you know, that plays in with the the lust control theme, if you will, and, and kind of some of the themes of the songs. Uh, also, the word condemnation uh, is kind of, uh, you know, uh, a condemning type of thing. And, and many of our lyrics and the way that we spoke about things and just the whole punk aesthetic um, uh, kind of embraced that type of thing. Although, as you later found out, our, our main message was grace and not condemnation. But, uh, and then uh, just kind of the, we just loved the way it sounded. It was obviously a pun. You know, this is a condemnation. And um, it was uh, just just kind of a cool, cool sounding thing that we thought would definitely get people's attention and would definitely stand out from the other things that were being sold in the Christian market. We definitely want to stand out be radical, uh, you know, get people's attention. That was certainly one way to do it. Yeah, well, there at, at that time, there was not a whole lot of uh, um, competition in the definitely the hardcore, more punk-oriented um, sound of the album. I think that, you know, you may be looking at Scattered Few as one of the only other bands, maybe a couple here and there. Uh, not that many bands out there that were doing this style, especially as aggressive as that album is. This was not melodic punk. This was um, pretty aggressive um, and, and pretty heavy. And I definitely, as a bookstore uh, manager and the music manager, um, dealt with a handful of people that uh, came into the store uh, complaining that their 14-year-old son had just come home with this cassette. And, um, but once I actually explained it, I really didn't have that many parents all that mad, um, about it. So in the long run, it ended up being pretty positive. In fact, one of the things I find most interesting is that despite the title and the subject matter, you brought up the, the idea that the album really is about grace. There's a whole lot more about forgiveness than there is about the sins themselves that you discuss. And the sins um, are pretty taboo in terms of subject matters, especially in 1988, when you're looking at sexual sins and pornography and masturbation and things like that. Those are things that just aren't brought up in music. 
And I don't know if that's what led HM Magazine to give you guys the uh, moniker of the worst band of the 90s. I would have hoped that, you know, you guys would have a little pull over there at that magazine. But <laughs> but I, 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 I kind of understand uh, where, where they were coming from. And I think one of the things that's most interesting for me, and maybe, um, Gene, you can, you can talk about it, is that some of the subject matter is also... Uh, I don't know how to describe it other than not very popular uh, perspectives at the time within the evangelical world. Case in point, um, one of the songs I wanted to address because I like the subject matter so much was Apocalyptic Nightmare. And the reason I bring that up is that um, it doesn't fit into what was big at the time in the um, DeGarmo and Key and Farrell and Farrell world that we're just talking about. You know, every, every single song was a rapture song. You put out an album in 1988 where the biggest selling album was, or the biggest selling book was a little booklet called 88 Reasons Why the Rapture Will Take Place in 1988. And of course, then when that didn't happen, it was 89 Reasons in 1989. You guys wrote a song yes. that didn't have that perspective that was popular at the time and, you know, was a leading thing throughout the 70s and 80s. So it's not only you dealt with difficult subjects, you also took a perspective that was mm, a little bit different. Yeah, that was fun. Um, the song <laughs> Apocalyptic Nightmare is something that I wrote the lyrics for and the, the, the song starts off with, what if the rapture doesn't happen just like we think it will. You know, what if the land of the free and the home of the brave undergoes massive persecution? That, that flew in the face of the popular theology that uh, that we were going to escape all of that. And, uh, and, and the chorus is like, what did the wounded Messiah say? You will suffer too, you will suffer too, you will suffer too, just like me. And uh, Steve Allen, our, the guy who produced it, put a lot of reverb on that, a lot of echo and and uh, made made the points kind of heavy, which was kind of kind of fun. But uh, yeah, I've, I've been through all the, you know, I've been I've been pre-trib, mid-trib, and post-trib as far as my theology on when the rapture might happen. But it's hard to uh, take a look at Matthew when Jesus talks about the the second coming and then the return, and talks about how how bad it might be. So I really wanted people just to consider, you know, what if we're just putting all of our hopes into getting to escape when it might get pretty rough down here for yeah. us. And it's as better, someone, it's and better to be prepared than, than unprepared. Yeah. And as speaking as somebody who is a, uh, a preterist post-millennial, I'm really, really, really post, uh, post-trib. Um, <laughs> so I, I, trust me, I understand when you're outside of the, you know, the popular, popular image, but I want to kind of get to the, the crux of the album. A lot of the songs d definitely deal with, with sexual sins, but it doesn't to me, when I even first listened to it, and I listen to it now, 30 years later, um, it doesn't have the normal why wait, you know, Josh McDowell series of, of albums and, and, and speaking engagements. Um, more it has to do with the fact that, you know, for, from my perspective was there's real sin, there's real struggles, and there is always grace. So it, speak a little bit to that part of the forgiveness side of some of these more difficult issues. What's funny about uh, uh, Grace is uh, Dwayne, who wrote the song Grace, he was the associate pastor. He went to Presbyterian Seminary in Austin, Texas. So he was kind of like a theologian. And and because I saw us writing so many songs about, about sin and pointing the finger, I said, I, I challenged him. I said, Dwayne, write a song for us about grace. 
when he came to the rehearsal the next week, we would we would have a three-hour rehearsal and crank out three or four songs in one three-hour rehearsal. So it only took about three or four rehearsals, and we had our album ready to go. But uh, and the song Grace is like has this the melody, and then it says Grace. And then the next chorus is Grace, saved by Grace, I'm saved by Grace, I'm saved by Grace, I'm saved by Grace, repeated, you know, four to eight times. And um, so, so it majored on simplicity there. Uh, it wasn't this, this big treatise on grace and trying to unwrap it and explain it. It just basically said, as a matter of fact, we're saved by grace. And so, yeah, I wanted to package it. And uh, I think it was Stanley's idea to, to, to bookend the, the album, This Is a Condemnation, that starts off with grace and it ends with there is a fountain and it goes into the grace reprise. So all this pointing the finger, condemnation in the middle, it's bookended by grace. So we can definitely make that point, which is what we wanted to do. Yeah, and you're looking at a 10-song album that, you know, is a, a whopping 20 minutes long. These are <laughs> these are some pretty traditional punk songs. In fact, um, I was gonna, I, the, one of the things I was going to bring up about Apocalyptic Night, or no, it was the, the Big M. The Big M is like your stairway to heaven. That song's like three and a half minutes long. I mean, <laughs> that's like your epic when it comes to that album, which leads me to that subject of the Big M. And I don't know which one wants to address it, but um, how difficult was it? You know, you're, you're involved with this church. You've got a member of the band that um is um on staff at that church um how do you how do you come into deciding we're going to address this subject that may be the single most taboo subject um outside of in the 80s if you went to like a sanctuary church and bob beeman would address it um for all the metal kids but outside of that there weren't a lot of people talking about that subject um in music let me me go just a little bit first and i'm going to toss it to gene because he wrote, uh, if I'm not mistaken, he wrote the lyrics to that song. <clears throat> I do, I do remember that, uh, you know, because of the style of music we we're playing, because of the punk uh, attitude in the music and the lyrics, we were able to be really upfront about the subject matter, uh, and it just so happened that a lot of our songs had had to do with sex. Now we were all twenty-something young men. And so this was a, a, very, a subject very near and dear to our hearts and also a struggle that we all had. And of course, uh, a, little, a little later on, I think, in the, in the church and at Bible bookstores and things, the subject began to be more addressed as, as pornography became more prevalent uh, and you had studies that came out like, like Every Man's Battle, things like this. So it, it, did, it did start to kind of uh, uh, catch on that, hey, we need to wake up. This is a real issue that's happening uh, among men in the, in the church, Christian men. You know, it's something they struggle with. But, um, uh, and of course, we, we just loved it because just saying the word masturbation in a song and having it be part of the chorus and the way we sung it, which was hilarious, um, it made us laugh. I mean, every time we did it, it made us laugh. We thought it was hilarious. And so it all just, and it was shocking. You know, the first time someone heard it, we loved looking at their faces to see just how they would react because it was, uh, you know, something totally unexpected. Which is probably the same expression people gave the first time someone explained the song I'm Turning Japanese um, to them. So there, there's probably a little bit of, of similarity is there. Gene, do you want to kind of finish up on that, the, the subject of that song? Yeah, uh, a story within a story. When we laid down the, this album, 
uh, it was live to two track and it was at a rehearsal space and Steve Allen was manning the, the, the boards behind a glass wall and he had a, like one of those office recliner chairs. And I don't know if Stanley got to see this or not. I always had my back to the wall, so I didn't see it. But the first time we went into the course was the first time Steve heard it. And he fell over his chair, fell off his chair backwards, laughing so hard. Uh, <laughs> so we got that kind of reaction. What's funny is uh, uh, Stanley was hanging out at my place and he said, I'm going to write a song for our album called The Big M. And The Big M, you know, you think, what well, is that about marriage? It's going to be about masturbation. And before he could bring the lyrics to the band, I brought the I wrote the song and brought the lyrics to the band. And so the big M, the title was given to me by Stanley, and I just kind of just jumped on it and uh, and came up with the lyrics there. I had and, forgotten uh, that. Hey, great! I'll take credit for that. Cool. Did you get songwriting credit on the on there? For- <laughs> You know, what's amazing is that this interview is actually longer than the entire album um, <laughs> so far. But it, it's interesting because it, it, the, the album, in a way, kind of took on a life of its own. Um, and, and I don't know if, if the band recognized it, but it kind of got this weird buzz of like, this was the, uh, the brown paper bag album that you would have to ask the Christian bookstore at, at the front desk and they, you know, I don't know if they hit it in the back room or, uh, but it kind of did take a life of its own and that there were kids out there seeking somebody who would address real life to them in a style of music that was not being discussed because you're doing this when, you know, you have, have Shout and White Cross who are dominating um, the heavier music scene in Christian music. So you have, you know, big hair metal bands and you guys are coming out with ski masks and aggressive punk rock, uh, much more akin to 1978's, you know, to the, the Buzzcocks and even bands like the, you know, Dead Milkmen or I grew up in Southern California. For, so for me, it was all about TSOL um, and, and, the, and Dead Kennedys and those sort of bands. So you were also branching out musically in an area that a lot of people uh, didn't want to touch. I, you know, there was the Jesus Freaks um, and a couple other bands. And I mentioned earlier Scattered Few, but even their stuff was a bit more progressive and melodic and, and yours being much more aggressive. So did you recognize that, wow, there are people out there wanting this, this album? Yeah, I think Stanley, uh, you know, being in One Bad Pig, and they played a lot of clubs with just mainstream secular punk bands, you know, was very much exposed to what was happening on stage, just very gritty, very raw. And so I think that probably played a lot into it, his experience there. Would you say so, Stanley? Yes, and uh, it also helped out that our lead singer, uh, Gene, could not sing. And so, <laughs> no, I say could not sing. If you're not a singer, be a writer. He yeah. had a voice best <laughs> suited for a style. And so, anyway, uh, yeah, you say the album coming out and having impact, or the cassette, rather. You know, when we first initially did this, we did it as cheap as possible because we thought, well, there is, we knew there was a bit of an underground out there of a bands, Christian bands, that were really left of center and that, and that no one had really heard of other than maybe uh, HM Magazine or some of the other little zines like Cutting Edge uh, would give a little bit of review to. You know, they'd review the, the cassette and maybe tell you where to order it. And we thought, maybe we can get ours reviewed in some of these punk Christian rags 
and maybe a few people will order it. That was kind of the initial idea, uh, but it it got. Of course, we sent it to other legitimate magazines and outlets to see in hope that someone might hear it and might pay attention to it or might review it. And to our surprise, it got a very small, very positive review in uh, in CCM magazine. Yeah, our friend Brian Quincy Newcomb. And then it got an even bigger review with really going into the subject matter and how important this cassette was by Campus Life magazine. We were shocked. I mean, that was a real turning point because that got the attention of a lot of youth directors and a lot of other people. So then when we when we then saw that there was a little bit of a want or a demand for this thing we had done, we contacted what was then one of the biggest um, independent Christian music distributors at the time. What were they called, Doug? Spring Harbor. What? Spring Arbor, that's yep. it. That's where I got mine. And they and they ordered, what was it, a couple hundred cassettes uh, from us or something like ordered, that? We, we met that? Mike at the Cornerstone Festival. Mike Delaney, who was the music buyer for Spring Arbor, who was a major gatekeeper for radical right. Christian bands, uh, he had a booth at, yeah. at Cornerstone called Rad Rockers. And when, when I showed him the cassette and we brought like 25 or 50 tapes and, and he just roared his head back in laughter when he saw the title. And so when we got back from Cornerstone, uh, he, or, he proceeded to order 400 units. And the day that those cassettes came into the warehouse, it became the talk of the entire warehouse. Everybody in all these different departments would buzz each other on the intercom. Hey, bring up SKU number 12472. And oh my gosh, is that really a title? <laughs> and it was just laughter everywhere. And Mike got called in by the vice president of sales. And he entered the office with his tail between his legs. And he got called on the carpet for it. And he says, Mike, you need to return these. So Mike sheepishly called me up on the phone and said, Doug, I, my hands are tied, you know, implying he didn't want to get fired and I need to return these units. If there's anything I can do for you, please let me know. And I said, well, actually, Mike, there is. You have a, a flyer program, you know, because Christian bookstores, there's like about 7,000 of them across North America. They would get a product from Spring Arbor because they carried everything from choir robes to Bibles to Amy Grant to books to radical Christian music. And uh, every time that you know, Christian bookstores probably got a box from Spring Arbor every single day with something in it. And there would be a flyer in there when you open up the box and you would pay, you know, a lot of money or a couple hundred bucks, maybe a hundred bucks to have a flyer in there. And you'd have to just send Spring Arbor your, your artwork for your flyer and said, I want a flyer for Heaven's Metal magazine at the time, which was not distributed in Christian retail stores. Just a few accounts that uh, I personally contacted people in you know, maybe a couple dozen stores yep. around the country. Like me at Maranatha Village. Yeah. Yep. And that was that was probably me talking to you, both for Lust Control's initial order yep. and, the, and the magazine. But anyway, that uh, he said he agreed to it because he, had, he, he, he felt like he let me down so much by having to return all that Lust Control product that the Flyer program got a tremendous response. The magazine purchaser looked over his shoulder and said, I'd like to pick up this title. Is that okay? And I was like, of course. And so that's how Heaven's Metal Magazine got to take a step up into onto the retail level because of this lust control tape and uh and john thompson had a a, a christian bookstore that he called uh it was part of a catholic store with a lot of nuns that ran the place 
And because of the title condemnation, he wasn't allowed to sell it except in a brown paper bag. And people would come in <laughs> to the front counter and he goes, hey, you have, that, you have that monkey tape? I wasn't kidding when I said that earlier. It was a real yeah. thing at some Christian bookstores. Yeah. I, I tell you, we could probably spend all day talking about some of these stories, but I, I and and I'm sure there's going to be some people who are surprised that uh, this album makes the the countdown. But um, I include it for for two reasons: one, because I think it's a great record; I think it's a really cool, fun punk album. Uh, but I also think that it's a super important album that made a difference in an industry because if you can watch what happened after the release of that album. Um, I don't think anybody touched maybe some of that subject matter, but all of a sudden discussions about pornography and sexual sin became a significant part of what some of the metal bands um, throughout the 90s, the, the world of the living sacrifices and, and whatever, they began addressing some of these sort of topics. So it, to me, it's not just a great album. I find it to be an important album um, um, for, the, for the industry, uh, despite the fact that, you know, HM didn't seem to have the great uh, uh, affection for it that I did originally. I just heard the editor's kind of a pain to deal with. So I, I guess I, I wanted to kind of conclude this by saying, like, if you could go, go back in that time, uh, is there something that you think um, it would be important people to know about the, 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 the concept of the album or why you really wanted to put something out like that um, is there something that sticks in your mind and, and, and are you proud of what you've done that people still talk about this album now 30 years later I'm very humbled by uh, your placement of us and just thank you so much and very very grateful for, for, the, for the honor uh, when, we, when we did this we didn't set out to do something great it started out as kind of a joke or a lark to put something out in the underground to see what would happen and as we began to write the lyrics um you know, I think there's a concept of, of God using somebody, uh, using a vessel, when they have an outlet. Like, God's probably not going to just pour the anointing oil all over you to be a painter, unless you're actually cranking out some paintings, unless you've got canvases and, and, and oils and, and paintbrushes on you. Or if you have an, a project or musical project you're working on, you actually have an outlet where you need creativity. And then it, sometimes God just seems to pour it on. And uh, so maybe, you know, we can hit with a touch of God's grace uh, and picking some of these subjects. But like like Stanley pointed out, you know, we were 20-something guys. Uh, we were writing about what was real to us. And um, and because of punk rock, have, having a no, no holds barred, uh, no taboo, uh, was too wild to tackle. And so we tackled it head on. And in uh, each of the songs kind of, kind of took a real hard stance on whatever subject it was going after. I think, uh, you know, the... The, this is a condemnation cassette and recording just to, was kind of birthed out of uh, what was going on with all of us at the time and uh, our musical likes and dislikes and and just wanting also to get a reaction from people you know we uh, we were zealous with our faith um, we love the hard truths of the Bible as and getting into them like the you will suffer too type of thing and kind of discovering some of those tough to deal with subjects um, and that fit real well with, with the punk aesthetic um, as we all wrote lyrics and different people in the band wrote lyrics um, a lot of us uh, love to use uh, humor in the lyrics 
and uh, you know, and words with double meanings or whatever, and kind of, and also love to put twists in there. Like I wrote a song called "Mad at the Girls." It's all about this guy that's mad at these girls because they're dressed provocatively, and and he keeps lusting after them. What a terrible thing they're doing! But the, at the end of the chorus, uh, at the end of the song, you see that he's really mad at himself because that's where the true blame belonged. And uh, so we love to put comedy in the in the things because we were funny guys. We were always cutting up with each other and joking. And uh, we love to put hard truths of, of the scriptures and, and, and sins that we were dealing with in our own lives. And then the grace that we had found uh, through God's love. And we just wanted to put it all in there. Uh, we had no idea what really would happen. With it. We thought that maybe through Heaven's Metal and these other outlets, we might be able to get a few people to, to hear it and we might get some reaction. We had no idea of uh, what exactly would happen, but it led to just some amazing things down the road. So. Yeah, and then, you know, you've also have gone on to do some other things, and uh, which are great. In fact, I'll be bringing Stanley back on under uh, his real name as we talk about his uh, incredible solo album, uh, when we get to it, which is so high up on the list, I told him before we started recording that it'll probably be a couple years <laughs> before I get to it, only because of the fact that um, it's, it's that great of an album. When, we'll, when we get to that, we'll definitely bring uh, uh, Stanley on. And Gene, thank you so much, and what an influence you have been on on me and on a lot of heavy metal fans throughout the years. And, and of course, I'm talking to uh, uh, Doug Van Pelt and Paul Kupak of Lust Control, and um, um, and I think it's 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 only fitting to to talk about as I as I close just what both of you guys have done for the uh, the industry. Um, uh, uh, both uh, uh, Doug, I used your top 100 metal albums of all time as a great influence in choosing some of the albums that are um, that will be on the list. Um, and and Paul, your music um, shows up multiple times uh, throughout. So. Again, I, it's it's great to finally get to see you guys and to talk to you guys. Um, and we have been talking about the band Lust Control and the album This Is a Condemnation, which, by the way, is available uh, for downloads um, Amazon um, through Amazon Music. You can get it at iTunes, a lot of the other um, areas. Um, really much better uh, mix and quality than what was on the original cassette. I definitely would recommend you tracking it down. So anyway, we have been talking to the band Lust Control regarding the album This is a Condemnation and we'll be right back right here on Legacy Here at Legacy we want to make it easy for you to find us there are several different ways that you can talk to us and let us know what you think about what is going on here at the podcast and also on the blog you can always go to our website at LegacyCCMsGreatestAlbums.com that's LegacyCCMsGreatestAlbums.com or by email at LegacyCCMsGreatestAlbums at gmail.com. You can always find us on the Facebook and interact with us there at Facebook.com slash LegacyCCMsGreatestAlbums, at Instagram at LegacyCCMsGreatestAlbums, and finally on Twitter at LegacyCCMsBest.
number 946. Released two years and a world away from less control is Larry Carlton and his acoustic jazz instrumental album, Alone But Never Alone. Several songs to highlight, including what we were just listening to, Smiles and Smiles to Go, uh, songs like Perfect Peace. Larry is one of the greatest guitar players in the world, especially when it comes to jazz music. And it was this album where his acoustic guitar playing really took hold and really uh, kind of changed the direction of, of what music was like on Christian radio, including this song that we played at KYMS, his rendition of The Lord's Prayer. Thank you. 
That's Larry Carlton at number 946 with Alone But Never Alone. Leave on the show your troubled mind Number 945 where you've been Just so long as you come on in Sunshine, making it fine Sharing each day that we spend Jesus is in us and we know it never will end We got joy that we just can't hide It's overflowing from inside Children of the Light was a short-lived band that was on the Sparrow label and it was kind of Sparrow's attempt to reach into the market of that California country music, of uh, kind of Bakersfield country music that would be uh, the Eagles and in Christian music uh, kind of dominated by Maranatha music with bands like Daniel Amos and uh, Gentle Faith and bands like that, uh, Bethlehem, The Way, all of those sort of bands. Uh, it didn't quite live up to expectations, but the problem is the record is really good, and a lot of that goes to producer Al Perkins. We don't care where you've been, just so long as you come on in. If out on the desert the going gets rough and you feel... The record is filled with great harmonies, which really makes the record stand out. Like on this song, Song of Love. Children of the Light with Come On In at number 945. Number 944.
James Vincent's amazing Enter In Project is the subject of this review right here. That's been the song, You'll Be Right There. James is one of the greatest musicians to ever make Christian albums, though he only made two. And we'll be talking about the second one sometime in the future. But for now, it is an interesting little story about James Vincent is that he formed a band with Peter Cetera while they were both living in Chicago. Peter soon left to join the band Chicago. album is filled with great jazz fusion and again as vincent is considered one of the best guitar players in the world for that style it shows all throughout the project Number 944, James Vincent's Enter In. Number 943. Taking a little break from the Archers, Steve Archer went and did a solo album appropriately called Solo, and it was filled with hit after hit after hit, including this one right here, the first song on the album, Treasure. In fact, this album had no chance but have a bunch of hits on it. When you take a look at the lineup on this album, it's kind of mind-boggling, all the way from Chris Christian as a producer to musicians like Billy Smiley, Dan Huff, Hadley Hawkinsmith, Michael Landau, Bill Deaton. I mean, you're talking about a who's who, and including this song, a duet with the very popular Debbie Boone. In a dream that's just come true And knowing Without a doubt it came from you You knew I could not survive In this world No, I wouldn't even try How did I live without your love 
sure And I promise I will love you Not only that, I should say that Dan Huff plays guitar on the album, including on this hit, Good News. Steve Archer at 943 with the album Solo. Number 942. Dressed in black leather and Rick Kua's fourth album, Wear Your Colors, is his most likely heaviest to date. The album was filled with a ton of great rock hits for the time, including the song Let Me Adam. Personal favorite on the album for me is Got the Rock.
I've had multiple conversations with Rick Kua about coming onto the show, and he has definitely said yes. So hopefully, as we go through the rest of his albums, which there are quite a few, Rick Kua will be a part of Legacy. But for right now, that is Rick Kua's Wear Your Colors at number 942. Number 941. There are more than just a handful of stories of bands and artists that were just criminally overlooked or forgotten in this industry. Probably no band more criminally overlooked was that of Five O'Clock People. The quest for faith is a lunar endeavor, not warmer and brighter, but darker and wetter. I tried and I slip as I reach out for daylight, but grasp only festival. Favorably compared to bands like Cademan's Call and Jars of Clay, they put out great album after great album in a very short time period. The best of those albums is this one, The Nothing Venture. Consistently strong, acoustic-driven folk and rock music. There's accordion, there's mandolin. It really is wonderfully diverse. And then it really kicks in with the song So Far Gone that really has kind of a Timbuk3 sort of sound for me. There's her face on the desk in a hardwood floor Where they both made a honest, maybe a little dark for a lot of people at that time in Christian music. Unfortunately, the band ended up on Pamplin, a short-lived label that just really didn't have a chance to make this band as big as they should have been. I favorably compared them to Jars of Clay and Cademan's Call, and honestly, they probably should have been in that same category. This is the constant question it's tireless insistence of blame in your name and I would truly give anything everything to silence these questions but I'm sorry And I'm sorry to make you cry 
sorry I know that it's over And I'm sorry To waste your time At 941, that is 5 o'clock people and the nothing venture. Number 940. You know, sometimes it's not about creativity. It's not about being unique or different. Sometimes it's just about rocking. And with Fireproof by Hiller, that's exactly what you get. was one of the most successful hard music albums in the history of Christian music, selling over 300,000 copies. Fireproof has kind of remained a popular album within its genre. The band went on to great success, though nothing ever really compared to the success of Fireproof. And a lot of it has to do with song after song after song. Not the best that the genre has to offer, but actually needs to be considered amongst the best in the history of Christian music, of hard music. That is Fireproof by Pillar and number 940. Once again, I'd like to thank my guest, Gene and Stanley from Lust Control, also known as Paul Kupek, and Doug Van Pelt. Something I was just thinking about, the movie Electric Jesus is now available, several different streaming services that you can rent and you can actually purchase at a pretty reasonable price. So if you're at all interested, now would be the time to check out that great movie Electric Jesus. So this is your host, Dave Lohman. Thank you for joining me this week on Legacy. I look forward to talking to you soon right here on Legacy. See you.